Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Today, we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Cynthia Kenyon, Vice President of Aging Research at Calico Labs, a company working to better understand the biology that controls aging and lifespan and use the resultant knowledge to discover and develop interventions that enable people to live longer and healthier lives. Prior to her current role, she was a professor of biochemistry and biophysics at UCSF, which happens to be my doctoral alma mater. I invited her here to celebrate and discuss an anniversary of sorts. 30 years ago, in December of 1993, the Kenyon Lab published in the journal Nature a groundbreaking paper entitled A C. elegans mutant that lives twice as long as wild type, one of a select number of studies published around that time that have led some observers of the field to identify the early 90s as the dawn of the modern biology of aging. I'm hoping that she'll share with us her perspective and how our field has grown and changed over the past three decades. Dr. Kenyon, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. So what I'd like to do most is give you a chance to share your perspective on how aging biology and perhaps biotech based on that science has evolved over the past three decades. But first, I'd like to give our listeners a little bit of historical context. So the first thing I'd like to ask you is, can you set the stage for us here? It's the early 90s. You're a professor in a very dynamic department at UCSF in which most of the faculty focuses on fundamental biological questions. You've made your bones as a developmental biologist. What prompts you to start thinking about aging? I think a lot of times people who have been involved in one field can have perspectives that they can apply to another field. And that's what happened to me. I had been studying the process of developmental pattern formation using a little worm called C. elegans. And what my lab and also many other labs working in different organisms discovered was that there's a set of genes called homeotic genes that are genes that encode what are called transcription factors or gene regulator proteins that give the body its pattern. And if you change these genes, then you can make big changes all at once in body pattern. And also they're universal. The same set of genes are in all organisms. And if you take one out of the worm and you put the same one from the fly into the worm, you restore the problem that the worm had when you took the first gene away. So I was used to the idea of universal programs for the specification of fundamental processes in biology. And when you look around at animals and just think about aging, just by thinking, you can come to a lot of interesting conclusions. So first of all, most animals age, the great majority age, and there's old animals and old people, they have something in common. Often I show people pictures or movies of old C. elegans worms, and they can tell right away that they're old, even if they've never seen a worm ever. So all animals age, and aging is sort of universal in a way. But the really striking thing is that they age at a very different rate. As you know, so for example, a mouse lives two years, and a bat can live 40 years, just for example. Canary, maybe 15 years. So if you think about it, you could imagine that maybe there's a kind of program for aging. And if you change components of the program, then you can speed up or slow down the aging process, kind of by analogy to what the field of developmental biology had learned about pattern formation. 
And actually, if you look really carefully at animal species, you see that there are long and short-lived birds, long and short-lived mammals, long and short-lived insects, meaning that longevity probably arose separately in evolution many times. It had to be a first bird, a first mammal, a first insect. So the idea that I had was that maybe there's some kind of, as I say, some kind of program that specifies the rate of aging. It would be kind of like a thermostat where you could turn it up or down and that would change the rate of aging. And the thermostat would be in not temperature, but this is aging rate. It would be in all animals, but it would be just set to run at different rates in different species by evolution. And so this was in the early 1990s. And at that time, most people thought that there couldn't be genes for aging. And evolutionary biologists actually had a whole theory for why this must be the case, which is that if there were genes for aging, then by the time you were able to benefit from, say, a longer lifespan, you would have already reproduced. And so it would be too late to pass the, these wonderful genes onto your offspring. And not only that, even if there were genes for aging, most people would think that you'd never find them because, first of all, there would be different genes for different organs and maybe a thousand genes for the heart and a thousand genes for the skin, et cetera, each with very small effects. Okay, so the way I was thinking about it was that if there was actually a, a generator, kind of a program for specifying the rate of aging, then by just changing that program with it, maybe even one gene or a few genes, maybe you could slow everything down and live longer. So we worked on C. elegans which is very lucky because these animals have a very short lifespan. They get old and die in just a little over two weeks. So not only does C. elegans have a short lifespan and rapid rate of aging, but there were already reports of long-lived mutants. So the first one was, first ones, I guess, were identified by Michael Class. And what Michael did was he mutationized some normal worms and looked for animals that live longer. And he found some, but it turns out that none of them ate very well. And it was already known, actually from his own studies, that caloric restriction increased the lifespan of C. elegans. So since these worms live long, but they didn't eat very well, he wrote a paper saying probably there weren't genes for aging, but these animals probably live long because they were calorically restricted. And people thought, by the way, that caloric restriction probably extended lifespan just by decreasing the wear and tear on the body that would have to do with metabolizing a lot of food so that it was just kind of a passive consequence. So that was his conclusion. Now, Michael never outcrossed his mutants. And by that, I mean, when you, when you look for mutants, that is gene changes in uh, C. elegans, what you do is you treat them with a lot of irradiation, some kind of a mutagen, and then you look for your mutants. Well, each mutant has about 30 gene changes. So often your mutants are pretty sick. And so everybody classical geneticists always outcross their mutants by crossing them back to normal worms many times so that you, in the offspring, you still look for the long life. And after a while, all the bad stuff just kind of gets, kind of gets diluted out and you have a, a single mutation left. But he never did that. However, several years later, Tom Johnson, another scientist who knew Michael Class, came along and did outcross Michael's mutants. And he found one that now ate well after being outcrossed and still lived long. So that's when I got all excited. I thought, okay, let's study, let's study aging. Let's see if we can find our own mutants that extend lifespan and just try to understand what they do if we can find them. I started at the time, you have to understand this is a historical context. At the time, 
aging was kind of a bad word, actually. <laughs> aging was thought by like by the graduate students and faculty at UCSF, for example, which is is a very state-of-the-art molecular facility, that aging was just a kind of wild morass and that you only bad scientists would do experiments there on, on that subject because <laughs> aging was so horribly boring anyway, first of all. No one wants to even think about it. And also there was nothing to find because of all these reasons I just told you about. So I couldn't find anyone to work on aging. My lab members were the idea was to look for long-lived mutants. And my own lab members were working on pattern formation and they didn't want me to do it. So then I had to start asking rotation students if they would want to, might want to look for long-lived mutants. And if they got to the graduate students first, the graduate students sort of scared them away. So I'd have to try to get to them before the, rotation, the graduate students did to see if I could convince them to come and look for long-lived mutants. Meanwhile, the faculty thought this was a really crazy idea. And they were actually very derisive. You know, they would say, well, they would just sort of look down their noses at me. Oh, Cynthia, you couldn't have a long-lived worm because worms have fixed lineages. Don't worry if you don't know what that means because it's irrelevant. And therefore, they couldn't have a longer lifespan and et cetera. Another person told me that, that he knew people who studied aging and they fell off the edge of the world. It was as if the world <laughs> was flat, really was flat. You thought it was round. And so you went and off you, and you just fell off. So the end. When I said it, they were very, it was hard because they were kind of derisive and it's hard to feel that sort of scorn. So anyway, nevertheless, I was, I had my idea having to do with the homeotic genes and pattern formation that there could be something interesting here. And that was enough to motivate me. And I think there's a lesson there in retrospect, which is that if you, if you think that your idea is a good one and you can't see why it's a bad one. And you think hard about it. You can't figure out why it was, it was a bad idea. And everybody hates it. Then do it. Because if, it's, <laughs> if you're right, it'll make a difference. So I, th I think that's a kind of, I don't know, kind of a nice thing to think about in retrospect. I agree. So finally, a rotation student named Raymond Tapchiang came to the lab and a wonderful person and said he wanted to look for long mutants. So the first thing he did was he took a laser and he removed the reproductive system to test this trade-off model for fertility and reproduction. And he found that even without their reproductive systems, the animals had a normal lifespan. So we were very happy because it was no mandatory trade-off. And then he looked for long-lived mutants. And very luckily, just starting the experiments, he found that mutations in a gene called DAF2 doubled the lifespan of the animal. And not only that, the animals were very were very healthy. They, they were actually aging more slowly and they were almost completely fertile. And like I said, they could move well. So it was a very exciting finding, really exciting finding. I mean, just looking at these worms was amazing because all the worms, the normal worms were dead and these guys are still moving around. It made your hair stand up really. It was amazing. So Roman did not join the lab. He actually thought maybe there was an age one mutation in the background of this strain. And that's why it was living long. So I, Cynthia, found a couple more alleles of DAF2 that other people have had isolated, and they all live long. So that meant that this was not a strange double mutant that just happened to exist, but that there was something special about the DAF2 gene. So that was the discovery that started everything. And then more rotation students came to the lab and uh, did more studies on the DAF2 gene. DAF2 was a known gene because it affected a process that took place during development. And in order for DAF2 mutations to have this particular effect on development, 
you needed another gene called DEF16. So I did an experiment where I asked, in order for the deaf to mutants to live long as adults, did they need DEF16? And they did. So that was very exciting because that said this was actually a pathway. You know, in a, here was a mutation that extended lifespan. And in order for the animals to live long, they had to have this other gene. So right there, before we even knew what they were molecularly, you could infer that the aging process was regulated and that single gene mutations could have huge effects on aging. They could slow down the rate by a factor of two. It's amazing. The next big breakthrough came with the cloning of these genes. Gary Rufkin cloned the DAF2 gene and showed that it encoded a hormone receptor similar to the receptors for insulin and IGF-1, which are hormones that we have in our bodies, all animals. And our lab, and also Gary's lab, cloned the DAF16 gene. This is the gene that you needed in order to live long if you were a DAF2 mutant. And that gene encoded a transcription factor that is a, a protein that goes into the nucleus and switches other genes on and off. So altogether, it just changed everything, really, because you still might not be able to agree on what aging actually is. People still argue about that even now. But what was quite clear was that it was subject to regulation by genes and processes that we knew about, by signaling proteins, by receptors, by transcription factors. So you could study it. You know, you could get to the molecular underpinnings of aging by starting with these genes and understanding, learning to understand what they did. I just wanted to quickly insert, uh, just emphasize this critical paradigm difference between the picture of aging that had been really overwhelmingly nearly universally accepted before this, that aging was the consequence of many genes acting at once or just wear and tear was genetically intractable to a situation where a known biochemical pathway that was involved in development seemed to be regulating lifespan and lifespan extension in a way that was uncoupled from its other known physiological functions. And that's a critical philosophical difference. And I think that's why your paper and the papers that you're mentioning that followed up ultimately captured the imagination of so many people. That's right. It just turned everything on its head. I mean, these animals became our role models, really. We wouldn't have invented airplanes, I think, if we hadn't seen birds fly. <laughs> and nobody really thought it was possible to live longer, so nobody really studied aging. I mean, in a molecular way. But now, you knew it was possible. So there was a real, real biology there, and we could study it. So exciting, so exciting. And I still get excited about it every day. It's true of when BioAge talks about health span extension and lifespan extension, we often cite the lifespan extension of worm mutants as evidence that lifespan is malleable, aging is malleable. It is potentially a program that can be altered by a small number of genetic changes. So I, I like your analogy about uh, worms are the birds of aging. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it sounded like you wanted to talk a little bit about flies and, and mice. I want you to, because the question I was going to ask you next was... Can I just for fun, can I circle back to age one for a second? Absolutely. It's fun to circle back to age one. Another experiment that my lab did was to ask whether the long lifespan of the age one mutant also required DAF-16. And amazingly, we found that it did. So that suggested that age one and DAF-2 were part of the same pathway. And that gene was then cloned and shown to be a PI3 kinase in the DAF2 pathway, in the insulin IGF1 pathway. So it all turned out to be one pathway. Oh, wow. Before we move on to other organisms, like what was the critical reception like immediately after you published? When I first told people about it, 
they would think of reasons why this wasn't interesting, you know, or it was just a worm thing. You know, that's another possibly it would be interesting to the worm, but nobody else. So that was one thing. But I remember when I gave a talk at the worm meeting, there's C. elegans has these meetings every two years, I guess, international C. elegans meetings. And I gave a talk before this was published about the Daft 2 mutant. And it was, you know, it's a huge audience because that's the way it is at these meetings. And I've never seen anything like it. There were a million questions. And when I stopped talking and tried to go out into the lobby, I couldn't move. <laughs> I was just surrounded by people asking questions. And every time I tried to move, there'd be more people. Actually, it was amazing. And that year, the DAF2 mutation was the most heavily requested mutation of all of them from the Cielgen Stock Center. And everybody started working on DAF2, which was great. So that it made the field go faster. What I'm hearing is people were excited and positive inside the worm field. So now what I want to ask you about is sort of over the timescale of the next few years, as these genes are being cloned, how did the science advance? And in particular, when did it become clear that what you'd learned in the worm might tell us about something about how aging works in mammals? So first of all, there already were mutations affecting insulin or IGF-1 signaling in both fruit flies, Drosophila, and mice. In the 1990s, late 1990s, two labs, the lab of Mark Tater and Linda Partridge, published papers showing that mutations in these pathways in flies extended fly lifespan. So that was amazing. That was great because flies are not worms. They're very different. And this was not just one lab, but it was two labs. And they showed the same thing. They showed that the animals live long. And later they showed that it was also required DAF-16, which is the, trans the same transcription factor called FOXO in flies and mammals. And then in the 2000s, it became clear that mutations in mice affecting the same pathway caused lifespan increase. And actually, these lifespan increases in the mice were still among the longest of any. You know, the growth hormone defective mice live long, growth hormone receptor defective mice, mice defective in the pituitary, which is part of this system, lived a very long time. And in other genes as well, IGF-1 receptor, IRS proteins, et cetera, the whole pathway just seemed to be involved in, in life extension. And not only that, there was another one, a gene called TOR, or a protein called TOR, which is part of the same network. So actually, I should say something before we go on. You know, there's something really, really interesting about the fact that insulin and IGF-1 signaling affect lifespan. You could say, why would that be? Why would they affect lifespan? And so let's think about that for a minute. Those proteins are best known for promoting nutrient uptake and storage in the case of insulin or growth, particularly growth of the, of the neonate in the case of IGF-1. And they're essential in all organisms, including the worm. And so if you knock them out, the animal dies or the person dies. But if you turn them down, something really interesting happens, which is that these animals are living longer. And they're not just living longer, they're very resistant to many different stresses like high temperature, ultraviolet light, starvation, all sorts of things. So I think what's happening is that having low levels of signaling through this pathway may be mimicking environmental conditions that are stressful, like low food or high temperature or some kind of xenobiotic in the environment, something like that. And what happens then is that the animal rolls out a protective response. I haven't talked about this, but the 
way that DAF-16 increases lifespan is by activating many different programs that increase the resilience of the animal. And it turns out that DAF-16 is not the only transcription factor or gene regulator that does this. In addition, heat shock factor, which regulates response to heat, NERF-2, which is a protein that regulates the response to xenobiotics and oxidative stress, TFEB, which is a protein that is responsive to other forms of nutrient modulation. They're all required for these DAF2 mutants to live long. And this actually helps to address the evolutionary biologist's concern. The evolutionary biologist said that if there were genes for aging, that by the time they've exerted their effect on the phenotype, it would be too late because you've already reproduced. But these gene changes that affect lifespan cause increased stress resistance, even in children, in animals that are not yet fully developed. So now, if there's a stressful condition and the animal can respond by becoming more stress resistant, it can live long enough to reproduce. So you can immediately see that there's a a justification or an interpretation, I guess, that could support the evolutionary interpretation that you could have a program that regulates aging evolve because it also regulates stress resistance. But there it is. The genes with their functions are still there in the adult. So if you change the set point, you can make an animal more stress resistant and you can allow it to live longer. This part of the story takes us through the beginning of the 21st century. And at some point earlier this century, it sounds funny to say that, something else interesting happened in the field. And that is the science of aging moved out of the ivory tower and into biotech. When did you personally become convinced enough of the potential benefit to humans of the knowledge that was coming out of basic biology of aging? The day we found these mutants. Okay. I'm not kidding. And the reason is that so many phenomena had been discovered in C. elegans, like apoptosis, for example, and aspects of RAS signaling pathways and so forth that were known at the time already to be conserved in people. The paradigm was that things that were discovered in yeast and worms and bacteria tended to be conserved evolutionarily. So I had never been interested in starting a company, but the day I found, not the day, maybe the next day (laughs) after I found those mutants, I thought, oh my God, we should start a company. And I actually was in a faculty meeting one time and I said, I'm going to start a company and I'm going to call it Immortality. And another faculty member looked over and sneered at me and said, Cynthia, those are just worms. (laughs) But anyway, in the year 2000, I did start a company. I teamed up with Lenny Garante, who was at MIT, who had been studying a whole different set of proteins called sirtuins. And so he had evidence that they could extend the lifespan of yeast, changing these genes. So we teamed up and started a company. It wasn't called Immortality. It was called Elixir. And it was in Boston. And actually, our patent lawyer was none other than a Raymond Tabtiung, the same person who had been my rotation student. Oh, I never said this. Let me just splice this in here because it's a great story. So I was the one that did the experiments to show that DAF-16 was required for DAF-2 mutants to live long. But there were about six, four or five rotation students who also worked on the project. And finally, we wrote a paper. And I was the first author because I had done half the experiments myself with my own hands, and I wrote the paper. And all the rest were rotation students, and not one rotation student joined the lab. They all went to other labs. So that's just an example of how out there aging was at the time. They all had some reason why this really wasn't going to be very interesting, and they all left the lab. It was incredible. Well, the joke's on them. Yeah, so we started a company called Elixir, 
And it lasted for about six years. And then unfortunately, the housing crisis happened in the, I guess, around 2007, 2008. 2007, 2008. In that time. And so we couldn't file our IPO. So that was the end of that company. So it became more and more the idea, I think, of slowing down aging, not just because of these worms, but by that time, there were a lot of other interesting interesting biological discoveries that really suggested that there may be many ways to slow down aging in people. First of all, I have to say there may be zero ways of slowing it down. It's possible that nothing we do will slow it down because we don't know the answer. But if we're anything like mice, there are going to be a lot, lots and lots of ways of slowing it down. Anyway, so now there are many companies that are trying to slow down aging in people and improve the, the health of old age, you know, the health span of the person. Last I heard, there were about a 100 such companies, actually quite a lot. But I think a lot of them now are in another downturn. So some of them have gone out of business. So it's a little lower. But basically, now the idea of starting a company to try to slow down aging and slow down age-related diseases, I haven't mentioned that, but the really wonderful, it's not really wonderful, it's a very interesting link exists between the natural aging process and your susceptibility to a wide variety of diseases like cancer, neurodegenerative disease, diabetes, heart disease, et cetera. So the idea is that if you could slow down aging itself, the fundamental cause of all these diseases, or the fundamental kind of potentiator of all these diseases, then you could slow down not just aging, but you could slow down or postpone or maybe ameliorate many, many age-related diseases all at once. So that the paradigm now for getting a drug for aging approved, since there isn't an actual strategy for FDA approval for the rate of aging, that may happen at some point, but it's not, not yet, not right now. But right now you can get a drug approved for HC. So the idea is you would go after a target that you think might be involved in aging because of maybe studies from animals or humans or whatever. And then you would get it approved because that piece of biology would be deranged in some way in a particular disease condition. So you could get the drug approved for the disease, but then it would be in humans. And then you could start to ask questions about whether or not it might affect human aging, human lifespan. I agree with you that a lot of companies are working to move the science of aging into the clinic. And I agree with you that this tactic you just described of initial approval for a clearly defined disease indication followed by expansion of use into preventive medicine, it's a great strategy. How do you feel like overall the drug development efforts are going? And I'm, I'm asking you to draw on your experience at Calico or within the biotech of longevity. How do you feel like our field is doing right now? You know, nothing is really simple. People have put, so rapamycin is a drug that inhibits poor and it extends lifespan in all animals that have been tested. And some haven't been tested, but in all the ones that have been tested, it extends lifespan. The animals seem pretty healthy for the most part. It's been now tested in humans for its effect on certain age-related diseases. And the studies, first studies weren't positive, but there may be reasons to, for why that might be. There are cells that are very inflammatory that arise with age called senescent cells. And if you clear these cells in animals, as many people listening to this already probably know, there are lots of effects on health span, the quality of, of aging, and also on many, many disease conditions. And these have been in people as well. And the first results, I think, let's say are modest, but that's okay. Maybe you would find the DAF2 mutant right off the bat, something really, it would knock your socks off. But 
that hasn't happened. But you know, there are hints that there are things going on. And I think, I think these are starting points. And I think there are a lot of other entry points that are there to be tested. Personally, I'm very optimistic. I'm kind of on a mission, a personal mission to slow down aging in people. That's what gets me up in the morning. And I want to try to get as many people as I can excited about that and motivated to try it also, because I personally think it will work. But I also know as a scientist that we don't know, maybe it won't, but personally, I think it will. That's just a belief. So in other words, let's start over. You can extend lifespan in mice or health span many, many different ways. There are reports that you can do it by changing proteins involved in cell polarity, by changing the vasculature, by changing telomeres, by actually rolling back the clock with Yamanaka factors in a process called rejuvenation reprogramming. Um, there are many, many different approaches that are seem to hold promise, nice promise from studies in mice, in addition to all the different insulin IGF-1 TOR pathway mutants. And so you know, the idea that none of those will work in people, I think is, you have to be pretty much of a pessimist to think that. It's possible. You have to be pretty pessimistic. I agree with you. And I think we don't know. Maybe only one will work, maybe two, maybe some combination. And maybe one of these natural compounds, like there's all sort of taurine, you know, all these things that people, resveratrol is, may have effects. You know, they, you need a way to test in a rigorous way in large populations, which doesn't really exist to see if they really work but maybe some of those really would work in people. So I really think it's a great time to be in the field. It's so exciting too. The field is just like the mechanisms that cause these life increases in mice are just really amazing. Like this whole resiliency cassette from the worm is amazing. And the whole idea that the Yamanaka transcription factors, that pulses of them can somehow reprogram the epigenome perhaps. And we don't know if it'll ever be possible to do that in humans, but you know, we can study it. There are transcription factors. We can study it and figure it out and give it a try. Absolutely. And I, I share your optimism, but what do you think? I mean, here we are 30 years after the publication of your paper. I am unaware of any IGF-based therapeutics in humans that extend lifespan. What do you think are the challenges and the, the limitations confronting the field? Is it a matter of perspective, regulation, funding? What's standing in our way? Or is it simply a matter of time? I think it's a matter of, first of all, Having companies that have the runway to stay in business long enough to really test their, their compounds. Of course, the company can be bought by another company. That's fine too. You have to have enough smart, talented people believing in it to actually try it. And I, I don't mean, when I say believe, scientists make hypotheses and test them. That's really what the scientific method is. But you have to be motivated to do that. You can make hypotheses about anything. And there have to be people that are motivated enough to try it and smart enough to do a good job. And not only smart enough, but trained well enough. They have to know how to design a clinical trial and how to do talk studies and so forth, you know. So you need a lot of know-how. And so you need a lot of financial support, which of course rises and falls in general in the world with the, with the economy, which is natural. The war on cancer started in 1973. And we still have a lot, a lot of people dying of cancer, but we have people being cured of cancer now by immunoonc, for example, and other mechanisms that didn't exist. So it could take longer than we think, but as long as people hang in there, and there's more and more reason to hang in there. I mean, every time you open a journal, there's some new, amazing way to improve the quality of life and maybe even length of life in mice. Good segue to my next planned question, which was, I want to invite you to look into your crystal ball and prognosticate for us. I'm not going to ask you to Tell us what's going to happen in 30 years, but just, uh, and I think you touched on some of these above, 
But what do you find the most exciting about the current field? What recently reported findings made your ears prick up and made you say, this is not business as usual. This is something new. If you think about it, I like to look at new discoveries. I think maybe because I'm getting older, I always see things in a historical context. So usually when a new discovery is made, it's published in a very high profile journal like Nature or Science, for example. That was the case with all the original papers involving the insulin IGF-1 pathway, for example. And then after a while, another paper, eh, you know, is sort of the same old thing. So it's still published, but not in those journals. But then there'll be something new like parabiotic mice. You stitch together a young and an old mouse. The young mouse gets older, the old mouse gets younger. All these new papers in nature and science. That was a very exciting around the year, let's say 2010 to 2015 in that time. Then along comes, well, Senolytics. So those, again, the Senolytics stories initially published in Nature and Science and so forth. Now they're published in different kinds of journals because we're, we're used to it. Rejuvenation reprogramming is the latest kid on the block because it's new. And so it's so exciting. So, I mean, I think when you ask a question like, what is the most exciting thing? Well, sometimes something is the most exciting because it's the newest. But if you think about it in terms of the biggest impact on lifespan, and this is going to sound very self-serving, and it is, but I hope it's true anyway, still among the longest-lived and most enduring perturbations are those that affect the insulin IGF-1 core network. Those are really big, and they're enduring. So I still find those very exciting. But what is cool is that every time there's a new way to slow down aging and maybe extend lifespan and affect diseases of aging, it just means there's yet one more way. It means that there's more arrows in our quiver, you know? And that I think is really important because we don't know if anything will work in people and if something will work, we don't know what. Kristen Fortney, the CEO of BioAge, is fond of saying that we want to have a lot of shots on goal. Exactly. I say the same thing. We want to have a, a lot of different ways. Yeah. I use that same term. I think it's an apt, an apt metaphor. You need it. And here's another thing we really need. We really need a way to fund clinical studies, like phase three-like trials, randomized clinical trials of natural compounds. Amen. So people come to me and they say, Cynthia, I'm taking rapamycin and resveratrol and taurine. Is this the right combination? Should I be taking something else? And I say to them, number one, I don't know. And number two, the way things are set up right now, I'll never know. And the reason is that in order to really know, you have to have a very well-controlled, very large clinical study, like a phase three trial. And those are very expensive. They can be $700 million to a billion dollars. So suppose you pay for that trial and you're successful. How are you going to sell you know, something that's a natural compound find, found in wine or an amino acid? You can't. You can't make your money back. So no pharmaceutical company can do it. And there's no infrastructure at the moment for governments or nonprofits to team up and do these trials. I think there should be something. They should do one or two every year, just like the mouse intervention testing program. It's all set up, funded by NIA, National Institute of Aging in the US. And they routinely study at three locations with lots of mice, the effects of, of interesting sounding compounds on mice lifespan. And it works really well. And it's when, you, when they get a result, it's very believable because it's done with large numbers at three locations. 
And we do something like that for humans. A publicly funded intervention testing program of natural products for longevity in human beings. That's right. And not for just one. I love it. Not for just, okay, let's do it for metformin. Not that, but let's do it for one drug and, and one compound and then another and then another and then another. Let's just keep doing it. I think that sounds great. And then, <laughs> and then not only that, so people who have a lot of money, billionaires who can afford anything, they'll be happy. But so will people in in poor countries who will become more resilient and more resistant to diseases, you know, and have a better quality of old age. And especially with the demographic shift being what it is, we really need ways of keeping older people healthier and productive for a longer time. We need a better health span. So it could be great. I agree with you. And you touched on a point that I find it's very near to my heart and, and near to all of our hearts at BioAge, which is the democratization of the clinical benefit that comes out of our field. We don't want to be people who make expensive medicines that only billionaires can afford. We want these medicines to be widely available. I mean, so much public funding went into the basic science underlying these initial observations. And, you know, the, the people paid for this, the people should see a benefit. So I was really glad to hear you echo that idea when you talked about benefiting people, not just the wealthy in the developed world, but people perhaps in the less developed world who have just as much right to increased resilience and a long, healthy lifespan as anyone. So in closing, and I think we're, we're, we're coming up on our time here, but I, there's something I wanted to ask you that's a very freeform kind of question. And that is, so when I invited you here, I wanted to, to use the anniversary of your paper as a kind of launching point to get your overall perspective on this field, this industry in which I and so many of our listeners and you are working. And um, I think we've had a great conversation in a way that's that lets you do that. But but I know that you have this incredibly deep perspective on this field. And so my question for you is, what have we missed? What's something you want to say about this field that we work in that we haven't gotten to yet that reporters and interviewers always miss? What's a thing you know that you want us to know? Yeah, there's a couple of things. One is there's this uncanny correlation in nature between the time it takes you to reach adulthood and your lifespan. Okay. All right. It's a very nice correlation. There are some exceptions, but it's a very nice correlation. Suggesting that there are effects that are that there may be a program for longevity that's that's very early. Oh, we had a t-shirt when I was at UCSF soon after we had made this discovery saying, death, the final stage of development. It was actually a t-shirt with a <laughs> Grim Reaper on the front. I wear it now for Was it for one of the developmental biology retreats? It was. It was made by oh, nice. Wallace Marshall made it, I think. Of course. For developmental biology. <laughs> exactly the final stage of development. And it is true that very early changes in growth hormone or insulin IGF-1 signaling or calories can have long-lasting effects on, on metabolism and lifespan in, in animals. And, and in some cases in people too, at least on metabolism. So that may be the answer, but I think that's really interesting to, to try to explore, you know, the kind of the early origins of whatever it is. Like if you look at the Gompertz mortality rate, so what that is, is it's a mathematical modeling of mortality. And on one axis, the x-axis, you plot how old you are. And on the other axis, the y-axis, you plot how likely it is that you will die that day. And what you find is that on an exponential plot, it's a straight line. In other words, for humans, the chance of dying on a single day, a specific day, doubles every eight years. Okay. But the, that's something that's well known. What's really cool is that the start of that straight line is in young adulthood. So by the time you're a young adult, as a human, 
you are programmed somehow to have that increasing rate of rate of aging, rate of mortality chance. If you're a dog, it also starts in young adulthood, but it goes up much faster. And worm also when they're young, but it goes up even faster. So there's clearly something that's put into you at a very young age that dictates your lifespan. And I would really like to know more of, is it a better proteostome? Is it maybe overall better resilience? What is it? I don't know. But I think that's a really, really interesting question. I agree. I mean, the idea that there are the origins of aging arise much earlier in the lifespan than we think is really fascinating. I, I certainly a different lens on target discovery for aging than we're typically applying. With the insulin IGF-1 pathway, you could give a little mice, I think, growth hormone for just a little while, just a couple of weeks, and then no more in their whole life. If you give them none at all, they live long. If you give just for a couple of weeks, they don't live long anymore. So there's something very early that seems to be programming the rate of aging. However, in the system, you can come in even at an old age and you can change the setting and get a long life increase with insulin IGF-1 signaling, with TOR, TOR modulation. Even in older animals, you can get a longer life. So it's reversible. It doesn't mean that it's set in stone, but it's normally set up very early. So I don't know, that's kind of interesting. But I'm just saying, I'm not sure that that's the most interesting thing in the whole world. It's just something I wish people paid more attention to because I think it's just really cool. Yeah, I, t I talk to a lot of people about their perspectives about how we're going to apply biology of aging to drug discovery, and that perspective is indeed missing. So I think that it's great that you brought it up. Maybe somebody will start a company to uh, look for the early developmental origins of age-related susceptibilities to, to disease and uh, discover something that the rest of us just aren't able to through our current paradigms. Yeah. And another thing would be, why is it that these age-related diseases are age-related? I mean, killing senescent cells, which are inflammatory, is beneficial in many preclinical models of disease in mice. So maybe one reason is because there are more senescent cells as you age. But is that the only reason? I mean, why? Why should it be? Why is it that COVID is so deadly to people who are very old and hardly deadly at all to younger people? Why? We don't know. Nobody knows the answer. But I think that that's another thing. Why are all the protein aggregation diseases age dependent? What is it about being older that makes protein aggregation more likely? Yeah. Nobody knows. And hardly any people are really studying that question. So that's another thing I think is interesting. It's absolutely the billion dollar question is what is it about this linear process of moving through time that causes all of these mechanistically dissimilar things to happen with increasing and exponentially increasing incidence late in the lifespan. Is aging one thing or is it many things flying in very close formation? And why is it that aging can cause so many disparate things to happen so predictably? I think it's a critical question. I think we're, you know, in, in, in the drug discovery business, we're so fixated on finding, you know, an individual target to develop a drug for. I think it's rare that a company steps back and is asking a big philosophical question like that. And that may be the role of academia to ponder borderline philosophical questions like that. All true. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely fantastic, Cynthia. I really appreciate you joining us. Well, it was fun for me and it's nice to talk to you. And audience, if you didn't know this, Chris was a rotation student in my lab. <laughs> did a great job. Oh, thanks very much. So it's really a real pleasure for me to, to be reconnected to him. 
Well, I'm sure I will see you at an agent conference in the Bay Area sometime soon. Yes. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.